Hey, this is Rich. This is Cass. This is Jacob. This is Luke. Yes, Salut, c'est Jonathan Mercier. Welcome to the Hillsong Creative Micropod. Well, hello and welcome to the Micropod today. I'm so glad that you joined me. Maybe the sound is a little bit better today than yesterday. We had a bit of a technical issue and Cass and I, uh, we felt like we recorded something uh, beautiful for you guys and, and meaningful. And so we didn't know we could recreate it by the time we we realized that it sounded a little uh, unfortunate. Anyways, today, hopefully this will sound better for you. And uh, we've got a really special Micropod for you today. It's actually a Macropod or a uh, a megapod um because it's a lot longer than normal um see uh, back at worship conference last year we we had a session called thinking well and in that session we really tackled some of the the things that seem really pertinent for this season uh you know with the the whole pandemic going on uh you know if our thinking is is good and healthy and heading in the right direction then then we can act out of that thinking uh that good thinking and we can live out of a good place and so uh uh, we felt like this that session was too good to not, you know, just to leave in the past and uh, to forget about. So here today, we we wanted to bring it back to you, give it to you as a gift, a gift uh, again, um, so that you can pass on to someone who needs a, a little encouragement in this season, or perhaps just for you as you listen, either in our team or around the world from uh, other churches and other creative uh, teams. And so uh, you'll hear Ben Fielding and Krishan J. Ratnam leading us in this session. You'll hear Joel Houston and uh, Taya and others, along with some experts in the field, uh, psychologists and also theologians, because obviously if we don't think well about God, then probably nothing else matters. So enjoy thinking well, pray that it's a blessing and... uh, that you're encouraged with this megapod. Have a good day. Well, welcome to uh, the Thinking Well session. Is that uh, familiar to anybody in the room, that creative process? A little torturous at times. Uh, well, we want to talk today about, about that idea of thinking well. And when was the last time that uh, you stopped to think about thinking? <laughs> about your mind? You know, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.7 that God didn't give us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And the idea there of a sound mind doesn't, isn't just limited to a particular aspect of our, of our mind. It's not limited just to our emotional state of well-being, but to our intellect, to our logic, to the way we think about God, to the way we think creatively, to every aspect of our mind. And our belief and the, and the reason that we've carved time out for this session today is that We wanted to just create a safe space in this uh, conference where we can talk as a creative community about our our mental health, about our creative thinking, about thinking well about God and deepening our understanding of who God is and and the way that permeates every other aspect of our lives. And I don't believe that God would call us to be people who uh, have whole lives in just one aspect of our lives, but that every aspect of our lives practically would line up with the high calling that we have as children of God. And so we wanted to create language and a space where we can discuss these things. And I I believe that it's important as the church, but as um, the creative community within the church for us to find language to be able to talk about our mental well-being and about our intellect, 
and about the Lord. Krishan, I'm joined by Krishan Jayaratnam, ladies and gentlemen. It's good to be here, Ben. It's always good to have you here, Krishan. So we've got a lot that we want to get through. We've got a lot of great thinkers here on this panel. So we want to launch straight in and talk about the creative process. And you, know, you hear terms like writer's block get thrown around and creative block. And what we wanted to do across this, this time today is to, to not so much get, get uh, held up by these ideas that might, um, and terminology, but, but work out how we can keep moving forward when it comes to our, our well-being, our, our minds, to not dwell uh, on, on problems necessarily, but to look at, at ways we can keep moving forward and have the kind of perspective of, of the hope at the end of it. You know, like I was saying that God's called us to have a sound mind, that it's not a gift that He, uh, he gives out intermittently. You know, some of our creative gifts, perhaps a little bit more like that. To some, um, God gives the gift of dance. He says, gift of dance, yes. Gift of dance, no. Gift of dance, definitely not. Um, <laughs> but this particular one, I, think, I believe God wants us to have a sound mind. So Robert, let's talk about the, your creative process. This is Robert Ferguson, incredible man. Now, as a, as a speaker, as a preacher, as a writer, Talk to us about how you always have a message to preach. What's your, what's your thinking? What's your, your practice? Okay. Many years ago, my wife was writing musicals and had writer's block. And she complained to God, and God said to her that he had all the stories in the world. And I think you've got to start there, that God has got all the ideas in the world. The key for us is to access those ideas. And I believe that in Christ, we have the capacity to access God's ideas. So I do three things for my creativity, which comes through in communication and writing. I do three things. I build up my spirit in order to communicate to a God who is spirit and who thinks on a different plane to me. So I want his thoughts, not mine. These people are precious about their ideas and thoughts, clearly haven't understood their source. So I've got to access God. So I do it by building up my spirit. The more I speak in tongues, the more ideas I get. Second thing I do, I look after my soul. I look after my soul by reading and by community. I've just read a book called How to Think and in which a man by the name of Alan Jacobs says, you cannot think in isolation. You can only think in community. He said, if thinking in isolation is possible, it is undesirable. So I build my soul up through reading and through, through community. And thirdly, I look after my body because if we, if we don't build up our spirit, we can't have revelation. If we don't look after our soul, we don't think right. And if we don't, if we look after, don't look after our body, we're going to think irrationally, as Elijah did when he ran from Jezebel. So I do those three things intentionally and purposefully, and then I have access to all the ideas in the world. It's amazing. Um, Kath Harrell, um, that idea that you would discipline yourself to work at a craft like that and prepare consistently can sound quite demanding. Is there a healing process? Is there something healing that takes place in the process of creating itself? Creativity itself is actually one of the evidence-based strategies, which means that research um, 
you know, studies certain things and shows whether it's effective or not. Um, that research shows that creativity is one of the effective ways of being able to restore health and well-being and can help us to stay well. And part of that is because creativity is a process that can help to lower stress levels, improve mood, and really importantly, can help to change perspective so that when we can actually get outside of a situation that might be causing us distress or is problematic, it can actually help us to just look at things from a different angle. And I have, in my practice, um, working with people, encourage a lot of them, most of them, to find some sort of creative outlet because it means that they can move from thinking and being analytical and perhaps even ruminating on the negative stuff to actually finding a space outside of that where they can almost find a flow to what they're doing and that can bring about a real sense of fulfilment and enjoyment, yeah, rather than just sort of thinking about what, how they've got to solve their problem or what's going on or how you know, bad they're going in their life or whatever it might be. And also that flow, when people can experience that, is almost like that savouring. And that's a term where we can really be in a place of enjoying that experience to the full amount that you possibly can. So it brings about happiness. It's one of the key factors for happiness that we can savour. And also it's something that we can share so out of creativity, we can actually connect with other people and, and bring about joy as well. I love that thought. So you can almost sort of create yourself well. You can create yourself out of a potential writing block or whatever you would call it. I think that's a really cool idea. Jay, in, in your world, what have you seen uh, like habits of highly creative people, highly successful creative people? What are some of the hurdles that you've seen people have to overcome to be able to keep moving forward? I think sometimes when people get to a place of um, burnout or, or anxiety, I think um, the hurdle that I've seen people have to overcome is the stigma around it. I think a lot of people get to that place and they start judging internally what's wrong with me, but there's actually nothing wrong. We've seen somebody, um, a psychologist or a counsellor to kind of get the keys for your mind. And I think um, people jumping over the hurdle of that stigma is actually a really powerful thing that it's actually okay to speak to someone. It's actually okay. The same way a creative gift can be, you know, you create something and, and, and it, 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 someone will say that changed me. What you, that creativity like moved me. There's a gift that people have, like these people here, that is a gift. And why would we not take advantage of a gift and the keys that God has given them to do well-being in our life. So I think that stigma, and then I thought I think as well what Robert was saying is a real um, learning balance. Balance is key. No one's gonna carve out time for your health and your balance, and you need to fight for that. You need to find Sabbath. You need to find time for rest. You need to find time to exercise, to eat well. And if you don't, that's some of the stuff that really starts to lead to a place of darkness, I think, so. I've watched you present a lot of ideas over the years and most of them, vast majority, received with enthusiasm. I'm sure there's moments where you present and prepare a lot of work and present it and it's maybe not received the same way. How do you cope with that kind of response to something you've invested time into? Well, um, I think firstly, as a creative, um, you tend to feel like you live in a place of feeling and sensitivity. So I think... Um, the immature side of it, like it's a gift firstly, that gift of sensitivity, it's a gift God's given to you and you need to see it like that. I think sometimes people identify it as a lack, but it's actually a gift. But with the immaturity, if you let that sensitivity, when, when you're getting um, feedback, making it about you, that's where it's at, immaturity. And you need to keep pushing 
feedback towards the project on hand rather than you personally. And I think mentally like training your brain that this isn't about me, this isn't about what I'm putting out, my vulnerability, it's actually about the bigger project, the bigger place on hand and kind of letting that sensitivity be a gift and like stewarding it in terms of like what God's given me rather than being vulnerable and letting it be about you. Beck, we've touched on that idea of burnout. Is there anything that you'd speak into us about moving forward from that kind of position? Often burnout, it's, it's the result. We often see it around emotional exhaustion, possibly social exhaustion as well. And we find ourselves finding it really difficult to engage with ourselves, with other people. And I suppose, so we want to consider how we can move forward effectively. And so with that, we really consider our, um, we have to look at what's happening within us and also within the relationships we're with and can seeing that um, our wellbeing is actually on a continuum. And so at different points in our life, we might be at different stages on that continuum. And so it's helpful to check in. That's why relationships and community are so important, especially in trusted relationships, as well as also knowing where our sense of self and worth come from. Do you know I mean? And when we can find ourselves founded in the truth of God and His, what He says to us about our worth and our value, there's some great places to start, but we also have to find practical ways to actually be able to move ourselves maybe out of significant distress back towards either mild, working towards well-being. And that's when we're looking at ways in which we can look at healthy habits in our life, thinking about the basics, some that have already been discussed around our physical health, such as our sleeping patterns, our eating patterns, our physical activity and health, as well as finding ways that we can monitor our thinking, understanding the place our emotions have in our life, but also how we can let them work for us and also how we can, again, access that support from other people, from our community and going a step beyond community, actually belonging within community actually offers a great place of safety where we can let people speak into our life as well to help us be accountable, but also to build our wellbeing. I think that's, that's fantastic. And I love how practical some of this um, feedback is, is already. Um, you talked about having good sleep practices. That's notoriously something that creative people don't do very well. Um, <laughs> Nor do my children, for that matter, as well. I was hoping I might send them the tape of this. Uh, but so, Joel, I wanted to talk to you. I know last night you talked about some of your experience over the past couple of years. What are some of the practical things that you've put in place and some of the things that you've done to ensure that um, you don't find yourself back at the, those sort of lowest points? Yeah. Well, I think for me, there was a moment of uh, awakening. Um, and I think that's... So there's, there was a point... Um, of awareness uh, that was made to me by people around me. And sometimes, you know, I talked about it last night, the moment of waking up, sometimes it's alarming at first. And then uh, that sense of awareness to me was, that was a huge moment because it's like, you know, how do you know you, I mean, the whole point of being crazy is that you don't know you're crazy type thing, you know? So then I started asking myself those kinds of questions. Am I crazy? Like, am I out of my mind? Um, my good reverend shrink here, Gary Clark, I stayed at his house for a week. That was, that was life-changing. Um, it really was, to be honest. I, but Gary was a godsend in those moments. And in that moment of awareness, it was, it was really, for me, it was like looking at the lay of the land of my life and kind of pulling everything out, all the rubble, everything, and kind of just being open, laid bare. And, and what I'd done is I'd fallen into um, a place of utter despondency, which just felt like 
being in a hole where you can't see out of it. Um, I know everybody goes through different things, but this was my experience. What I realised kind of in the wash-up upon further reflection is I just started looking at all these areas of life, my life and I, I saw these kind of tensions that I'd, I was good with in my 20s, I was good with in my early 30s, but at some point there I'd failed to reconcile some of these things internally. So my way of dealing was it, with it was my creativity was to throw myself into vortexes of work. And so I realised that I would go days basically in isolation, but I was t- selling myself the lie that it was for a noble cause, that I'm doing this for God, that I'm in the Word, that I'm... It's, it's dealing with... It's just digging me deeper while I'm not dealing with the real stuff. And what I wasn't able to deal with was certain things I couldn't reconcile between my spirit man and my flesh. It, you know, it's a great metaphor for me that I always think about is, you know, when you're... Like even right now, I'm, everything's light. And I think I was uh, spending a whole lot of time kind of trying to figure out what is this shadow behind me. Um, and so I lost my passion for stuff and my sense of calling and a feeling of being a fraud or feeling like, you know, this is not the real thing. And all these different things I kind of laid up. And then I looked at uh, areas of my life that are real priorities, things that only I can do. There's a bunch of things I can do, but there's certain things that I'm doing um, that I don't need to be doing and that are actually causing conflicts elsewhere. So an example of that was, you know, I was still trying to be a pastor in New York City. I felt like a terrible pastor. I felt like I was doing a terrible job with United. I felt like I was being a terrible dad, a terrible husband, terrible at life. These are these tensions and it's like noise, you know. And so I stopped listening, went deeper into a hole. So now the practical things I do um, is if I realise that I am spending a whole lot of time in my own brain, like working on something, like this there's kind of danger signs and trigger points that I've just learned to kind of see as alarm bells um, and to try and be aware to them. And I have friends who um, are able to call me out on that, friends who challenge me. I started playing golf. I got outdoors, all the healthy stuff. I thought about how do I reconcile these things in my heart? How do I reconcile these things in my mind, um, my body, soul and strength? The, what do I exert my energies towards? And these are all trigger things and I'm still figuring it out. But what it did is that brought clarity because it's like unraveling all these coils. Um, like my hair, I spent the whole morning trying to brush my hair because I hadn't for about a week and it, a whole lot of hair fell out. And evidently I don't need that hair. Um, and, but you just, you, you know, you get through it. And, and one by one, every tension that I reconciled, whether that be, okay, why do I, do I feel like I'm a, being a, da- a bad dad, you know? Um, well, it's got nothing to do with my relationship with my son. Like it's got everything to do with the fact that, you know, um, I am causing this relationship over here, which with, might be someone else, or it could be something that I, you know, basically could be my relationship with my dad was, now I'm getting personal, <laughs> was impacting that. And so I reconciled a couple of things with my dad and suddenly I saw myself as a good dad, little things like that. Um. Gary, that idea, like some of what goes into this creative process can make you feel like I've got to stay up late at nights or I've got to do this or that to try and get in the zone. There's this elusive idea of the zone you've got to be in to be creative. You've passed it and helped a lot of creative people. Would you speak into that idea? I think the, um, the, everyone's mantra as a creative is that it all comes at three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> somewhere between 2.30 and if I'm lucky, four o'clock. So I've got to stay there until I get there. And, uh, you know, I've just, I've just done a lot of study just recently on these types of things. How, how would I say without being too offensive? 
It's the, it's, just it's, be yourself, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> just be your offensive self, Gary. No. I've got to be careful. I've got to be, I've got to be careful. I say. Often it's the mantra of the undisciplined that says things. Um, and, you know, they are, and it's not always true. And... Um, there is, there is, you know, there's science to prove that uh, creativity doesn't arrive at three o'clock in the morning, um, and you don't have to spend hours and hours and hours to get in the zone, stay in the zone. If you get in the zone and you stay in the zone, if you're not careful, you do what Joel said: you get too far in your head, yeah. and you can't get out of it. And there's science that proves actually, you, if you actually give yourself a break you will actually come back into it fresher than you were when you left it. But the mantra is that we've got to stay in it, we've got to wait for it there and just, and it becomes this, almost like this undisciplined trap as opposed to just being disciplined enough to say, I'm going to get in the zone, now I need to give myself a break, which is give my brain a break and all of that. It's only a quick break, come back to it and science proves that you will come back into that fresher than the way you left it. In, um, in preparing for this session, we, we looked at a, a study that's come out of Victoria um, 2016 that looks at the entertainment industry, creative industry in Australia and compares uh, data against the general population. And one of the uh, pieces of, of research that they did is into sleep uh, patterns of creatives. And I just thought it's relevant because we're talking about it. And I think it's going to come up on the screen. That, uh, there are three times the level of sleep disorders in the entertainment industry, creative industry in Australia than in the general population. I thought it might be interesting to come back to you and, and ask about what, why, why is that? And, and, you know, we've talked practically about changing some of those patterns, but what are the actual physiological, psychological benefits of changing our sleep patterns? Yeah, I think um, when we look at these studies, we see that um, statistics like it, like this are, are reflective of high demand industries. So when we're both, and in a creative sense, when we're sort of putting our heart on the line, as well as trying to meet deadlines, and just like what Gary was talking about, we sort of feel like we sort of have to stay in this this route or this pattern of trying to get the our creativeness out. It's um, or to create, it can. Unfortunately, we can sort of fall into a pattern then where we think we have to stay up to, get, to be creative. But what we actually do know is that routine and disciplined sleep are actually foundations of well-being. Mm. And so just as we were, just Gary was mentioning then as well, um, we know like a good sleep and good breaks actually do help a person become more creative. However, when we see statistics like this, we want to pause and understand possibly what's happening for people. And I mean, again, every person's story is unique, um, but we also know that that with with routine and with breaks and with learning ways in which and pra getting practical strategies and support to find ways to improve our sleep can actually, again, really enhance wellbeing and our mental health and can help pull us out of sometimes those dark places we can find ourselves being. And it can be pretty tricky at 2 or 3 a.m. to tell ourselves to stop because we've convinced ourselves we need to be there. And so that's why discipline and routine, it can feel pretty uncomfortable when we're trying to put new patterns in place. But when we do, we actually start to see the benefits over time. Yeah, it's awesome. 
I'm finding this really, really useful and, and interesting because I think, you know, as, as creatives, we spend a lot of time digging into our craft and trying to get, you know, better and better at what we do. And sometimes we neglect some of these really essential things that if we could get that part of our lives in order, it would probably make, you know, twice as much difference as, you know, spending another, you know, day in the studio just trying to grind out to, to find another song or art piece or whatever you're working on. Taya, you were talking to me before about... Um, uh, something that you changed in your life over the last year or so. Can you just talk to us briefly about, about that and, and why? I've been seeing a psychotherapist for the last three to four years and um, I really do believe it has changed my life. Um, she's an absolute gift in my life and um, there was a period of my life when we just made the decision that I would be meeting with her for every two weeks for an entire year and you know I travel a lot and so that was a big commitment and it didn't matter where I was in the entire world and we would um, get into a secure um, confidential environment because she's a professional and that was really important and um, we would have this session that would go for 45 to 50 minutes and um, it really helped me uh, put in place habits that would help me process some of these things that we get to do and get to be a part of and just give me real life skills um, of how to, I don't know, process and and I realised as well, um, I'm super passionate about this because the freedom that I found in this, I call it kind of like a sacred place, this woman is also a Christian and I do believe that she has the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I could be talking for 50 minutes in a session and I wouldn't be bringing the one thing that I felt on my heart to bring because I was a bit embarrassed. And yet at the end, she's like, I'm just going to come back to this. And I'm like, he told you. <laughs> and the freedom that I experienced in certain parts of um, my life that I hadn't had before because I hadn't had a place of that true vulnerable transparency I wish I'd known before because when you taste that freedom, you know, we're not meant to be bound in this life. We're meant to, we've been set free That's for freedom. Great. That's great. And we're not meant to have a divided spirit, heart and mind, but we're actually meant to be undivided. And I believe there are people that are gifts in our lives and we're meant to come alongside. And But that also requires a step of vulnerability. And I wish I had known that so many years ago because if I had just known what it truly feels like to be free on the inside in certain areas that I hadn't ever experienced before, I would have come running a long time ago. So, yay. <laughs> it's so good. Um, with some of the prevalence of uh, health issues in the creative community broadly in this country, uh, Margaret, chances are everyone in this place would know someone who's struggling with something. Um, how do you support someone that you see in that space? You be the friend that you want. And so you just come alongside your friend or whoever that person is and say, can I have a coffee with you? And then you just start to talk about, you know, I've just noticed you look really tired. Just be kind. Always be kind when you're talking to someone. Treat people as you would want them to treat you. Just be kind. And just, you know, as people sit and settle and they just start, you just keep talking or keep listening and they just say, you know, I'm, I'm not sleeping well, I'm not doing as well as I have been doing. You just say, can I encourage you to go to your GP? We could do it together. We could call the GP now if you would like. And then 
from there, I would just recommend they see a psychologist and just get some help. It's so important that you get the kind of help that you need so that everybody walks in, as Taya was saying, absolute freedom. And I, I would also say, because I'm a pastor, that it's so important just to make sure that people are in the word. And I actually know when people are not doing well, it can be a, a challenge for them to read their Bible. So just say, even if you can read one verse a day, just one verse, find a verse that really speaks to you as where you're at in this moment. And even if for weeks, or however long, you just need to go over that one scripture, just keep encouraging them. Meditate on that. Just keep keep in the Word. We all know it's the Word that changes our lives. So encourage that person to get professional help. Know you're there as a friend. You're not the professional help. Let the professionals be the professionals. You be the friend who encourages them to read their Bible and to pray. Fantastic. Um, Laura, firstly, I heard you speak very bravely at Colour about some of the challenges that you'd faced recently. Is there anything that you'd want to speak into that has practically helped you move forward? Yeah, I think, um, you know, for, for me, you know, growing up in a healthy church environment with so much like incredible input and um, constantly in my life, um, there were many years, even though I had that, where I just developed such like unhealthy thinking and thought patterns and it became like cycles, like year after year after year after year after year, um, in short. And so um, towards the end of last year, I just got something within me, like this fight within me that was just like, I'm, I'm actually over this. I'm done with this. Like I'm ready to make a change internally. And I found a little bit of fight in me and... Um, and so I just remember this really kind of moment that I had where I went, okay, I'm going to partner with the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm, Joel spoke a little bit about awareness before, but like, you know what, I'm actually self-aware enough, I think, to, um, to put things in place to help myself um, in partnership with the Holy Spirit. And so for me, I was like, okay, I know like this sort of thing, like that triggers unhealthy thoughts. So what can I do practically? And I wrote down like just things, like practical things to, to help myself. Um, and I just actually believe in the power of the Word, like Margaret was, was, was saying. And um, I spoke a couple of weeks ago here at church about um, in Ephesians, where Paul is speaking to the church of Ephesus, and he says, I pray that you would experience the immeasurable power of God that raised Christ from the dead, that is living and dwelling inside of you. And I got a, I just got a revelation of that. I'm actually powerful. Like, yeah, like we are creatives and we can be sensitive and gentle and tender, which I think I am. But I'm actually powerful because the same spirit of power that raised Christ from the dead is living and dwelling on the inside of me. And, and there was this fight within me to reclaim the girl that I know that I am and that God has called me to be. And so in doing that, just 
understanding the power of prayer, the power of worship, the power of, of speaking to who God is and, and talk like telling God who He is, not because He needs to know who He is, He knows who He is, but because it reminds my soul who God is and that I am saved and that I am redeemed and I actually have the power to overcome. So I'm raising my victory flag. That's awesome. So just before we move on and talk about thinking well um, about God, I wanted to come to just a couple more of the, the findings of this research paper and then come back and, and talk to, to Beck and Kathy about, about this. But um, some of the, the other data that I found to be quite striking is that anxiety symptoms are 10 times higher in creative industries in Australia than in the general population. Depression, I believe something three times as likely to show symptomology. Alcohol and other substance abuse is at much higher rates in the creative communities. You spoke about how this might be, you know, less or perhaps more analogous to other sort of high demand industries. But what would you want to say today to people who uh, might be concerned either about themselves or concerned about somebody on their team or in their creative agency or workplace? What what are some immediate steps that you, you should take? Great question. And I really just want to say how insightful and awesome it is to hear from the experiences as well over here that it's um, being vulnerable to share, but to be able to include that in this conversation is really important. And it's been articulated in such a great way that highlights the importance of awareness as well for, for oneself or if it's lacking, how to actually have people around you to be able to point that out. So not just to be isolated, but to maintain your networks. So when it comes to actually, um, you know, seeing that in other people, I suppose just acknowledging that well-being, like Beck said, is on a continuum. So we can go from feeling really well, optimal well-being, we feel good, maybe even flourishing, enjoying life, to maybe feeling certain points of distress where it's mild, moderate, severe, and then at the, probably the worst end when it's really critical. And being able to understand where you are on that continuum and noticing the changes. Now, it's actually okay at times for us to feel mildly or moderately, moderately distressed. We can feel stress in certain situations. It can actually benefit us and work for us and help us perform. That's that kind of inverted U performance curve. When we can hit that optimal level, we actually are in that zone. We're on, we can feel good and perform really well. But if that continues on and on to the point where actually our performance is starting to be impaired, so our sleep's disrupted, we're not eating well, we're isolating ourselves, maybe we're doing other unhealthy things. Um, it's important to then tell someone and not and to get to it before you start to feel ashamed. Shame comes about because of condemnation. We start to go, I should have done that, I should have done this or whatever it might be. We put ourselves down and then we can actually get locked into that and it prevents us from connecting to others. So ensuring that if someone is in shame, you start to see the changes in other people, someone in that position, you need to go to them. You actually have to connect and go to them. Just like Margaret said, how about we get together for a coffee? It's been a while. Open a space where it's safe, comfortable, not threatening. How are you going? You know, there's a whole Are You OK campaign. You know, we can use that all the time. Just check in with one another and encourage that help. So support and coping can be effective on your own for a certain point. And Laura spoke a little bit about that and what, what she did there to be able to help herself. But also when you know that it's actually not improving, so you're not getting anywhere, you're feeling like you're still stuck, it's hard to make that shift, actually just start to seek out other options, including, you know, your doctor, 
tell someone else and get that support. And that's what we're here for. Like, we, we don't want people to come when they're at that critical point. You know, we want to see people actually say, I just don't feel myself. Talk about it, problem solve, get some things back in order, whether it's just getting better sleep, whatever it might be. Some of the basic things of our wellbeing, it actually can start really simply. And then, um, you know, start that journey there. It's brilliant. Thank you so much. We want to shift now into thinking well about God or thinking well theologically. And uh, we understand that God has created us in His image. It means the way we think about God has a massive ramification about how we think about our own being and our own vocation. And we're wondering, Rick, if you could paint us a picture of God as creator. Uh, Can I just say first off, thank you uh, for the privilege of being here. And uh, Hillsong, you have given the world an amazing gift. We thank you for that. So grace and peace to you. Is that true? Amen. Thank you. Well, I think uh, where we begin really sets the trajectory for where we end up going. And when I went to seminary and I wanted to do theology, which is the serious business about God, the first place we started was the doctrine of God. That might be your experience. What's interesting about that is uh, even though such people regularly talk about the importance of Scripture, It's not where Scripture starts. Scripture starts with Genesis and you don't actually learn much about God in Genesis. What you do see is that He's a creator and most of the emphasis lies on the world that He created. Uh, I think this is actually quite an important insight and what it means is the grammar of our Christian life is not good and evil. I grew up with that where it was all about guilt and shame. Someone mentioned that and we started with the cross. But actually it starts with life. Right? And I think that's really what we need to try and do is rethink our theological conversation around life. What that also means that creativity is not something that just happens. We are made in His image. Making is what we do. So the only question is not whether we make, it's what do we make and what are the consequences for God's creation and for His people. Uh, it also means that there's an inherent holiness about creativity. Isn't that stunning? Every creative act, I think, can be an act of worship toward God. It's a priestly, holy activity. Uh, And how does this happen in Genesis? By the Spirit hovering over the waters, and we are Pentecostals, right? (laughs) So that same Spirit, of course, that hovered over the waters now lives in us. So I think creativity is something that just comes, if you like, naturally, because it's what we're made to be. Uh, If you've ever read Steve Jobs' biography, he talks about an encounter with Mark McCoonan, And Mark McCoonan introduced him to the idea of imputing. And what he said was, people do judge books by their covers. You've got about three or four minutes to form an impression and that stays with them. It takes an awful lot of work to change that. Now, if that's true, what does Genesis impute about God? And the first thing we see is this incredible flourishing diversity of the life of God in the world. All Christians should not look the same. All movements of Christians do not have to look the same because God's creation doesn't. And we need that diversity, I think, to facilitate one another and to bring His life to each other. Uh, I've only got a few minutes, so I need to hurry up here. Uh, The second thing to notice, and it's really important, folks, is creation is not perfect. And I can't in this short time tell you how important that is, but in a perfect world, nothing can change. Nothing. And every time it does, it's not perfect. What that means is humans are of no significance whatsoever. Look at Greek culture. 
But Genesis tells us creation is good and that's brilliant because it opens a space for humans to do things and what we do actually matters. We really can change the world. I feel like a pygmy in the presence of giants having listened to some of these chaps and folks talk earlier. Just amazing stuff, right? Now, that being the case, creation is good. There is this dynamic mix of order and freedom and getting that one right is a bit tricky, but it's critical to what we do. The result is meant to be actually shalom, an environment where we really can flourish and others can know that too. Uh, Three things, I'll finish with this, that designers tell us apparently that are critical. Uh, The first thing is every design choice we make reflects our character. So designers can walk into your world, your home, your church, your work, and they can read your character off the shape of what you've made. So that makes character absolutely critical. And it's no surprise then that the Scriptures focus primarily on the character of God, and especially in Exodus and then in Jesus. Second thing is character is formed through deep narrative. That's how it's expressed. That's why the Bible is so much about narrative. It's telling us who God is. You don't know concepts through narrative. You do know people. That's one of the reasons why when Apple talks about, so I'm not being an Apple evangelist here, but um, (laughs) there's a reason that they spend so much time on the packaging of their products. That packaging is a narrative. They've got three or four minutes to impact you. That's why they care about their Apple stores, right? That in itself is a narrative as you walk into that. And I think that's what Scripture is doing to us. In this narrative, it shapes us. So we've talked about character. We've talked about deep narrative. And finally, two other, or one other really big thing is in a world where you have freedom, which is really what the Gospel gave us. In the ancient world, people thought change was the enemy. You can't live in the modern world without having a basically basically Christian view. That's even modern China. And the most radical Christian atheists put them back in the first century. People would think they were Christian. You know what that means? The Gospel has actually won. It's actually won, folks. It's brilliant. Well, in all of that freedom, you need two things, or you need a couple of things, I should say, to guide you. Usually big metaphors. And the biblical ones are creation is God's temple. Every design choice we make should take into account what our actions mean for God's temple. And He will destroy those who destroy the earth, Revelation says. And then secondly, every human being is made in God's image. So my every design choice should be about what does this mean for other people who are also made in God's image. It's great stuff. Thank you for listening. That's incredible. I'm so glad I got to be so close as well. Joel Hingston, not Joel Houston. Hi. Joel, um, you're an incredible guitar player, um, you're an incredible creative, but you're an incredible theologian. How is it that you have done that journey uh, over the the last number of years, studying theology, deepening your well there and still staying passionate about your creativity, your faith and the church? Thanks, Ben. Um, basically, I am, I am blessed and privileged to be in a house that I stand on so many shoulders. And um, because I stand on those shoulders, I've been able to ask questions and explore ideas that we didn't have the time in the past to do um, because we were just building church. And so I, I definitely don't take it for granted. And I'm very grateful. But I realised I was really excited about ideas. And they were the ideas that annoyed people. And so I would often um, find myself talking to JD or Jad or um, Matty Fitz and like a whole slew of others, the Langtons. I'd hit these walls and I wouldn't know how to think about it. And they'd be like, they'd bring perspective and they'd help me get through it. And 
basically, it helped me stay in this really healthy environment. So I was, I was allowed and given space to chase ideas. Um, I was kept close. People put up with me <laughs> and with my ideas and my questions. All of that led to exploring faith and falling in love with church for myself. One of the biggest breakthroughs for me about uh, talking about faith and thinking about faith was that throughout this theological journey, you'd explore concepts and theories and arguments and systems. And at the end of the day, every time I had a breakdown in faith or a faith crisis, it's because I realised my faith was in something other than God. And so the big uh, takeaway from that that's really energised and inspired me in my studies and, um, and what we do in Hillsong College as well um, has been that, and because legitimately the students ask these kinds of questions quite regularly. You know, what do I do in church? What do I do about faith? Yeah, it's, it's basically realising that faith only ever works if it's in a person. It doesn't work if it's in a system. It doesn't work if it's in, you know, an argument or a theory. For example, uh, I think it's Joseph P. Healy in the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary points out uh, in the Old Testament, there's barely even an actual word for faith. Um, rather, it's, they always talk about actions that are associated with trust or demonstrated loyalty. Um, which I love that Joel was mentioning last night. It was just trust, 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 and action that is attached to that trust. And so, um, yeah, it's very inspiring. And basically the community kept me close and the ideas kept me pointed towards the idea that there is a person who is bigger than the theories. Love that. Um, Duncan, you're someone that I know is passionate about questions. And theology. Um, could you talk about those two worlds and how to process well? Thanks, Krishan. Shout out to all our Hillsong College students in the room. Um, one of the things that I've discovered throughout the three, three or more decades of my own Christian journey is not to be afraid of the questions. Um, I think often we feel like there are certain questions we just ought not ask. Uh, and in polite Christian company, you definitely ought not ask certain kinds of questions. Um, my discovery, and I suppose working, walking the journey with numbers of other people, is sometimes if you don't allow certain questions to be asked, and if you don't validate certain questions, people get stuck. Uh, and if they get stuck and don't feel like they can get answers in the community of faith, they will go and find answers to their questions elsewhere, and typically those answers are not great answers. Not just because they're wrong answers, but because they're just poorly framed, they're illogical, they're irrational, they're not evidence-based, they are just poor answers. Um, so I'm good with people having questions. I've certainly had my own seasons of asking lots of really big questions. And typically I found myself in those seasons because the answers I used to have no longer did a good enough job of answering, answering my evolving questions. Uh, so I needed to, I'm always going back through cycles of questions. The place I've got to now, and I think the thing that I would encourage everybody with is, and I'm sure someone like Rick and others here have reached the point where they realise when you subject the Christian faith to a bunch of questions and some tough questioning, you'd realise that in the long run, it actually stands up. That compared to the alternatives that are out there, the alternative worldviews, the alternative explanations, the alternative ideologies, Christianity is the best one going because it has got the best answers to the most important questions a human being could ever ask. Uh, and it is 
not just the truest answers, but the best and the most helpful answers and answers that you can actually live authentic lives with. Uh, But some of those answers you'll only get to if you allow the question. And if you find yourself in those seasons of questioning, what I would probably just summarise, because we've seen it arranged a number of times here this afternoon, is the importance of community to ask your questions in community. If you don't ask the questions in community, you'll be asking your questions on the internet and the internet is not your friend. (laughs) And there's so much rubbish on the internet, there's so many poor answers on the internet. What you need is the benefit of community and here I'll make a shameless plug for college, is one of the things that a good community gives you is well-educated intellectual mentors who can take you on the journey of learning to think well. Because one of the reasons sometimes we ask questions is not that we don't have enough information, we're just not good thinkers. We can't evaluate a good argument for, is it logical, does it have holes in it? Does it line up with the evidence? Um, Is it a comprehensive answer to things? You don't necessarily know who the right people to read are. And if you just go on your own, choose your own adventure journey, you're not gonna discover the best people to read. Uh, Someone who's done that journey, again, someone with the background of someone like Rick will be able to point you in the right direction. Who are the best people to read? Who are the the best thinkers? And again, if you will allow an intellectual mentor to take you on the journey, your faith will grow, I can guarantee it. Your thinking about your faith and about God will enlarge and you'll end up with a faith where you've come to realise, you know what, what I believe can withstand any questioning. It is better because of the questioning and it answers the questions better than anything else going around. Therefore, I can, I can do the journey as a Christian long-term because I know this is going to be deeply, intellectually, emotionally, aesthetically satisfying for the long haul. Ross, we wanted to tease out if there is uh, in the New Testament an intersection between theology and creativity. Oh, there really is. And I think one of the things we forget is that the Apostle Paul, that most of us know as, you know, kind of the doctrine teacher man, he was a great poet, great creative thinker. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, has there ever been a greater love song or poem? And when communicators and marketers tell politicians today, you've got to get to three words, they can only take three words. 2,000 years ago, he was summing it up as faith, hope and love. <laughs> I mean, he was already doing the poem and actually understanding how creatively you communicate that. So it's significant to see that the one who gave us that great poem that is read more than any others or sung more than any others at a wedding is the guy who gave you the book of Romans. The guy who could think theologically. Guys, it's not an either or, it's a both and. It's a both and. We have to think and we have to be uh, people who are creative. And we need to be creative today because I reckon one of the great lies out there is that Australians are less and less spiritual. They're not. They're just less and less Christian but they're not less and less spiritual. And the key to reaching Australians is creativity, creativity in ministry and poem and song and dance. 
but because there's all sorts of other spiritualities, smorgasbord they're exploring, it's absolutely essential that our creativity, our reaching them, has a biblical worldview framework. They won't get it otherwise. And look at what Paul does when he goes to the Greeks and the pagans. Now, I don't think we realise how hard this would have been. Here he is inspired by the Spirit. He's been in synagogues, if you like, churches doing who is Jesus from the Bible, proving Jesus from Old Testament prophets. He gets into this pagan, biblically elite group of people. And what does creative Paul do? He tells a story. He doesn't open his Bible. But he tells a biblical story, the narrative creatively about who God is, how He sustains all things, how we are people that are responsible to this God. And then remarkably, he starts quoting their poets. Read Acts 17, he quotes their poets. He quotes Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Harry Potter. He quotes their poets. <laughs> and he brings it into a context of that. And then of course, he finishes with the resurrection of Jesus. And we've heard about that today. If you go through every sermon, every speech in the book of Acts, when the early church spoke, there is only one doctrine, one teaching they always got to, and that is He is risen. He is alive. And the early church would not open their mouth without saying, He is risen, He is alive. Australians are looking to be the best possible person they can be and they're not seeking that spirituality from someone dead in a tomb. They're looking for someone who knows how to recreate the lost order and their families and their health. And the resurrection of Jesus must come out in all of our worldview and our proclamation. Fantastic. Phil, you've had a great impact on our church and on many of the young people who are now older people um, in our world and many of our creative team. Uh, you were there for the formation of United and all that's emerged out of that and pastored a young generation through that. I was wondering if you could speak into us as a conference and then pray for us. Yeah, I was having a conversation with Christian actually a little while ago and we were just talking about some of this stress and anxiety and just I think today we seem to be dealing with so much of that in whatever area of creativity, church, ministry and life that we're dealing with. And, uh, you know, we were kind of reflecting on, it seems to be more prevalent today. One of the conclusions we came to is that back when we kind of started establishing the youth ministry as it was, we couldn't go to this little device in our hand and see what everyone else was doing. We didn't have a clue. Like, I mean, we, we knew there was a lady named Jenny Mayo in America running a youth ministry, but we didn't know what everyone else was doing in youth ministry. There was no way to know. You could email someone, you get a response in a week. And, <laughs> and, it, and so... So we just got about doing what we did because we loved it and we had no real comparison yeah. to anything other than just giving it our very best. And I find now you can get on your phone and you can see what everyone's doing everywhere and who they're with. 
And who they're with seems like really cool people and what they're doing seems amazing. And this whole comparison catches up with us and it can really cause anxiety and just this feeling of somehow I'm not really doing enough. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not happening for me. Uh, it should be happening quicker. It seems to be happening over there. And why isn't it happening here? And I'm doing everything that I think is right, but I'm not, I'm not seeing it the way I would like to or the way I have this expectation I should be seeing it. As I've been thinking about a lot of this, uh, I've become more and more enamoured with trees. Does anyone here love trees? Like I, I love... Look, I've never hugged a tree, but I'm, I'm getting to the point where I would. Like, if you have, enjoy. And recently I was out uh, on a beautiful farm in a place called Franchuk, which is just outside of Cape Town where I live. Thank you very much. I took this picture. Um, this is going to come up. Look, it's so creative of me. <laughs> And as, as we were there, I, I was, um, we were talking to the lady who kind of ran the whole farm and it was this beautiful place. And she said, I can give you a tour. So we, we looked around, she said, here, come. And she pointed out one of these trees that was on that image. And she says, what you'll notice is that this is a different kind of oak tree. She said, this is an original French oak tree that was brought over to South Africa by the French Huguenots who came in the 1600s. That's why this tree looks different from other oak trees. And I'm like thinking, okay, wow, this is, this is and it's beautiful, but it's different. And as I began reflecting on trees, it's interesting that uh, God placed man right at the beginning of the story where we enter it in Genesis in a garden. There's trees there, there's you know, all kinds of different beautiful shrubs and all the rest of it. And, and, and God put us in a garden and He said, tend the garden, but maybe He put us there to observe it. Maybe there's things we can learn from trees. And what I began to uh, consider is that trees see time as an advantage. We live in a world today that sees time as a disadvantage. We look at everything happening around us, happening to other people, opportunities coming their way. We look at our device and we go, why isn't it happening quicker for me? But if you look at a beautiful tree, it has taken years and years and years to become what it is. Well and maybe that's God's plan for all of us, is that your life would be this beautiful tree. The beauty of a garden is it has all kinds of trees. And in fact, many of them need each other to really continue to reproduce. And so the idea of being in community is part of what this garden is all about. And this idea of a tree where over time you become who God planned you to be, it doesn't matter whether one other tree grows up a little faster than you. Because if you just keep growing, 
the way a tree grows, over time, you're going to produce something beautiful and time actually becomes your advantage. Yeah, great. You don't need to worry and stress about when it's going to happen. We've heard so many amazing uh, pieces of wisdom here. You just need to have the courage to live that out with daily disciplines over time. And when you're younger, I think this is a big battle because we have this expectation that it all has to happen quickly. But the more I live, the more I realise I just want to be a beautiful tree. <laughs> Thank you, Joel. He said, I am. And I think you're all beautiful trees at all different stages, yeah. all different heights. <laughs> but learning this and allowing it to become real is so, so important. And as we do that, we're going to create things of great beauty. The thing about a tree is it produces fruit and that's what Jesus wants us or desires or created us to produce. As I conclude, and let me pray for you, it's different from blessing. Blessing and fruit are very different. It's nice to be blessed by God. But Jesus talked about fruit in John 15, fruit that remains. And here's the thing about fruit. It's always for others and the next generation. It's not about you. Whatever you've been given, thank God for it. But understand this fruit of your life, an apple from an apple tree is always for others. The seeds of the apple are for the next generation of apple trees. That's the kind of lives that He desires for us to be. Let me pray for you. Father God, we just thank You that we can gather like this and allow You to speak to us about these kind of things that really matter. Lord, we don't want to get caught up in the comparison and envy of what may be happening in someone else's life and allow that to limit what You could do in us or stress us or cause us to live fearful or anxious that maybe you've forgotten about us because God, you don't forget about any of us. We just need to learn to trust you a little bit more and recognise that as we serve you, as we live for you and as we grow in who we are, that time truly is our advantage and we're going to grow into all that you've called us to and our lives will bear much fruit. I pray it over every person here, every person listening in Jesus' name. Amen.